So uh, the Fowler family is on a quest for the perfect chocolate chip cookie dough recipe. And uh, mainly it's just a good excuse to always have cookie dough in the fridge so that we can eat it or put it in the oven and bake it, you know, whichever way you prefer. Um, and so, you know, they're all basically the same ingredients and, you know, you a little more of this or a little less of that, one to the other, and sometimes they have a little secret ingredient or something they add, but, you know, they turn out flat sometimes or they turn out too poofy sometimes or they turn out too crunchy sometimes or they're close, but just not quite right. So we're still on the quest for the perfect chocolate chip cookie dough recipe. If you have any submissions, you know, feel free to email. Uh, we'd love to try it out. I'm a Chewy fan. I don't know about you crunchy people, why you, why, you look, why you destroy your cookies that way. But if it's a Chewy recipe, we're available. Um, Paul has a recipe in mind today as he closes out the book. And it's a recipe that's a lot more important. It's the recipe for a church that is healthy and growing, and by church I don't mean a building that's really big and doing well. I mean a group of people that have bound their lives to Jesus and to each other. Like, and it's the recipe for how that church can be healthy and unified and growing. Right? People being changed. And so that's what we're looking at as we wrap up First Thessalonians. Um, again, the, the book, just to frame it out, it has two big sections. Chapters 1 through chapters 3, marked by thanksgiving. For what God has done in the church, what God has done in the lives by his gospel in the people. And so he's thankful for their labor of love. He's thankful for their work of faith. He's thankful for their continued hope as they wait for the return of Jesus because of the salvation of Jesus. And so he's thankful and that stretches throughout. It starts and it also ends that section. And he's thankful because he sees the evidence of the gospel within the church. And then he transitions in chapters 4 and chapters 5 to say, all that stuff that I just said you're doing awesome at, keep doing it and then just do more of it. And so it's the practical section that talks about holiness. You're you're, you're pursuing holiness, which is God's will for you. Now just do more and more of it. Don't stop progressing in it. Loving each other, you're doing it. You are a church that loves each other. It was the evidence at the beginning, and it's what's happening now. And it's the report I've gotten back from from, uh, Timothy. Do it more and more. And then comfort each other because Jesus is coming back and you'll be reunited with your loved ones. And they're not going to miss out and you're not going to miss out. Jesus will unmistakably come back for all his people to bring them to himself. So comfort each other with that. And then what we looked at last week was the coming day of the Lord, which will be a terrible, dark, awful day of God pouring out his wrath and judgment on rebellious mankind that starts there and goes forever. It's a day of darkness where all of the work of Jesus is done and completed as he finally puts his judgment on rebellious mankind. And it will also be a day of beautiful, joyful, glorious salvation where his promises are are kept and met and salvation becomes final for those of us who follow him. It will be our day of deliverance. And so it's meant to be a wake-up call, right? That there should be alertness to our life. There, he uses the word awake. There should be this intentional alertness to our life because the day is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and the night is coming where nobody will be able to work again. That is, salvation will not be applied to another soul when the age closes. It's over and the final decisions are made at that point. And so there should be an alertness to your life if that's coming, if that's approaching And then he also uses the word sober. 
There should be a sobriety, a weight to your life, a weight to your engaging with God, a weight to gathering with God's people, a weight to interacting with the lost world. There should be a, a somberness over the top of it. And we're also going to talk about joy today, but there, there should be a sobriety because that day is really, really terrifying to think about because there are people you love deeply that are going to be on the wrong side of that day. And that should put a sobriety to us. There's people you love and that are going to be delivered on that day, but, but their lives aren't making the impact for the kingdom they're meant to make. And so there should be a sobriety to that day. And then today, this week, as we, we wrap up, he, there seems to be in Paul's repertoire a batches of exhortations for churches, batches of practical implications. So if you read through Paul's letters, there's some that just repeat throughout the different letters. But it seems like he's just got these batches of, of practical things that he wants to give to the church, and they would really apply to any church. And out of those batches, he seems to select the batch that works for this church, for this situation, for this thing that's going on in the lives of the believers there. And he pulls that batch out and he sticks it in to wrap up the book. Well, with the Thessalonians not having any major theological issues, any major lifestyle issues, any major sin issues, he has chosen a generic but important batch to plug into in this book. And it's a generic and important batch that's really focused on here's what a healthy church, here's what people do to create an atmosphere of, of a healthy church and that it's something that no matter how good things are going, you have to be mindful of because there's always the opportunity to stumble. That we should always be fighting for health. We should always be fighting for unity. We should always be fighting for growth because there will always be things that want to pull us away from that. And so today there's a recipe as we're called to create an atmosphere of health and growth. Let's read and then we'll, we'll pray. And so 1 Thessalonians 5:12 and following. We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. And everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. So, Father, I just pray that as we look into this word, this word would look into us. We are such frail creatures, God. Would you, would you poke at the areas of our soul, Lord, that, that have things that would diminish our health and unity and growth? God, would you poke at the things in our soul that limit our own growth, that limit our own health? Would you poke at the things in our soul that we are doing to either contribute or not add to the health and growth of the people you've placed us beside? Would you not let us read through practical sections and think, wow, that's great, and move on, but would you let us read practical sections and let your Spirit convict us and prod us and stretch us and encourage us and grow us and then push us towards each other? 
God, we're not going to do that naturally, and so we're asking for you to do it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're called to create an atmosphere for health and growth. The first one, the atmosphere where we elevate leaders we can respect and value. Where we elevate leaders where we can, that we can respect and value. And it's always weird to me to preach on leadership passages, right? Because I'm the one that's standing up here, and it's kind of like, you should respect me. You know, like it's, it's just a weird feeling, but it, it's in the text. God says it, and so we get to cover it, right? Um, so there's kind of these two categories how we can lead other people, right? One of them is positional, right? I'm the boss. I'm the CEO. I'm the sergeant. I'm the general. I'm the lieutenant. You do what I say. I have this position that you must respect, this position you must obey. And, you know, if, if you've got a boss, no matter how bad you talk about him at the water cooler, when you go back, it's, yes, sir, I'll be happy to do that because I want my paycheck and I want to keep my job, Right? And then there's influential leadership where I use my relationships, my connections, and, and my ability to lead and connect with people to move them in a direction, right? Now, hopefully the two overlap, right? Hopefully your, your positional leader is also an influential leader, but there's these two kind of postures. And the further you get away from, from uh, Christ, like if you're, if you're in the military, right, you do what they say with a salute and a smile, Right? Or you don't want the consequence, right? Do what I say. You know, if it's the CEO of a company and they say do it, you do it, right? But the more you get towards leading volunteers or people who have other options available, the more it becomes important that we influence the people around us. Yes, we may have a title or we may not have a title, but we use our relationships and our connections to lead them in a direction. But when you get to church leadership, Yes, there are positions that should be respected. There are positions of authority that should be followed. But if you notice when you read the sections of the New Testament that deal with leadership, when you read them, yes, here's the title, but then it goes straight into here's their character. Because character in Christian leadership is far more important than competency. Not that competency isn't important, but character is what they're driving for. And then when they're not talking about character, they're talking about functions and service and what they're supposed to do. So that, yes, you should respect and follow the authority of your leaders, but yes, leaders, you should have the character and you should be doing the kind of activities and work that make it easier to respect and follow. And that's what Paul is going to kind of point to here is both the posture that you should take and your view of leadership is poked and challenged because it's real easy to kind of sidestep those. And then for leaders, it's poked and prodded to say, here's some activities that should be part of your life that are going to engender respect and esteem or take away from it. All right, so let's look at it as we jump in. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work's sake. And so he's asking them, which means it's purely a request, but it's a request that I know you love me. I know your desire is to follow Jesus. And so I'm asking you, but I expect that you're really going to apply these things, that you're bent towards obedience in these areas. And so when he comes to talk about leadership, he gives two postures that you should have as someone who is part of a church, who is part of a gathering of people, and that your default, when you look at leaders, should be respect and should be esteem. You want to respect them. You're looking for the qualities that are respectable. You want to value them and love them. Like, it is your basic posture of value and love. And it's so important that he says it because that's not generally our default posture towards 
leaders. That's not always our default posture towards bosses or towards people in authority. We, you know, we'd much rather say, I would have made a different decision. It's so much easier to find fault with the guy that's standing up front or the group of men that are making decisions that aren't easy decisions. And it's so much easier to default towards complaining and to default towards, I would have done it differently, and default towards uh, some attitude that, that pulls against that. Like it's deep within the hu- sinful human nature. And so that's why Paul, when he comes alongside the church, he says, you should, your starting posture towards your leadership should be a starting posture of respect and esteem. That you want that to be your heart for them. And so the word respect simply means to take note of, right? And so to respect them, take note of them, you know, look, uh, look up to them. And then the other posture is esteem. You should value them. You should love them. You should think highly of them, right? So is it pressing on you yet? Right, is that your default posture? When you walk into any work situation, but more importantly, into any church situation, it's like, I want to love this leadership. I want to esteem this leadership. I want to respect this leadership. And I'm going to bend in that direction until I'm forced in another direction. And then he gives you these set of activities, these categories of how they conduct themselves and how they conduct their leadership and ministry. He gives these categories that says, now leaders, here's what it looks like to earn, earn that respect that they're giving you, earn that esteem that you're, they're giving you. And so it's, it's focused on the congregation, but it's also kind of this, this set of qualifiers for the leader to look in for him themselves. And so those who labor among you, right, look for leaders who labor. Now, he's used the word labor throughout the... So in chapter 1, your labor of love, that is, love puts on work gloves, and it's strenuous, hard work to sacrifice and love the people around you. It is not a word you say. It is a life and an activity and a sacrifice that you give. In chapter 2, he labored day and night outside of the church in order to not be a burden inside the church. He labored. And then in chapter 3, he labored in his ministry for them. He strained himself to the point of exhaustion in his ministry to the church at Thessalonica. And now he looks at, at the church and he looks at the leaders and he says, now it's your turn. Elevate leaders who labor. The word labor means do what it takes. Right? It can mean manual labor. It doesn't just mean that. But do you have leaders, whether it's visible or invisible, whether it's up front or behind the scenes, they serve and they work and they do whatever it takes to make it happen. Right? Because there's something about a work ethic. There's something about somebody that's willing to do whatever it takes that allows you and increases your respect for them. And there's something about people that kind of coast and people that are a little bit more lazy or people that like, wait, they don't do anything around here, but they're asking me to do all this stuff. That makes it a lot harder to respect them. And so he's like, respect leaders that you see that are willing to strain and labor and work and do whatever it takes, visible or invisible, to engender respect. Your leadership should be some of the chief servants, the hardest workers. And then notice that it's among you, that, that many of the leaders of a church should be elevated from within the church. And then the second category of a leader's service, and who are over you in the Lord. Well, the word over simply means to stand in front of. And it's used two very distinct but very clear ways within the New Testament. It's used one is leading, you know, Leading with authority, standing in front of somebody. So that's one way it's used. And the other way, just it's used of taking care of people. And so they stand in front of you to lead you with authority, and they stand in front of you to take care of you. 
And so leaders, are you working hard? Are you willing to do whatever it takes at whatever cost to make sure things happen? That, that depends on you. And do you take care of and lead people? And then the third one is admonish. Or wait, they take care of you in the Lord. Right? That it is, it is towards Jesus. It is in the will of Jesus. It's aligning with the character of Jesus. And so it's leading towards Jesus and it is caring like Jesus. In the Lord, right? And then the last one, to admonish you. So admonish means to teach. But a big overlap of that teaching, at least the thrust of the word admonish, is the word correction. Like, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to do it. And if you do, there's something wrong. And nobody wants to receive it. And so, like, yeah, if they work hard, I'll respect them. Yeah, I mean, if they take care of me, I'll totally esteem that. But what about when they teach, desiring your transformation, and when they desire your transformation, it requires some correction in your life, whether it be public teaching or private encouragement. Now all of a sudden it becomes more important that our default posture is esteem and respect, not complaining and grumbling, because it's going to be real easy to complain and grumble when somebody corrects us. And so do do you have leaders that admonish you? And so you think about these categories of activities for leadership. Do they work hard? As hard as or harder than anybody else. Do they lead and care for you? As those who must give an account, Hebrews 13 says. And then, do they teach privately or publicly? They may have a class. They may have individuals they invest in. Or they may stand up here like me and teach. And they're willing to teach directed at your life being changed to be more like Jesus. Even if there's times that means correction is part of it. If you find people like that, elevate them. If you find people like that... Take note of them and respect them. If you find people like that, put a value on them. Love them. And then he uses that second word, esteem, right? Love, in love. Think highly of them. Why? Because they preach really well? Because they have a great personality? Because they can build a big ministry? Because they make things happen? No. Why should you esteem them? What should you look at in their lives that should add to your value and the height of how you think about them? What is it? Their ministry. What kind of real difference is made in the real lives of real people? What kind of real service of the word, real service of care, real service of encouragement is taking place? Look at their ministries, not their personalities. Look at their ministry to people, not their abilities up front. That may be part of their ministry to people. But look at their ministries, their work, and value them for the ministry that comes out of their lives. And then be at peace. Be at peace among yourselves. Right? you going to have a church that's healthy and growing and flourishing. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to sidetrack into disunity. There's going to be an awful lot of opportunities to sidetrack into, you know, my feelings got hurt, to sidetrack into I would have done it a different way, to sidetrack into any number of things that take you off the path of unity and health. And so this closing charge of this section on leadership is leaders live at peace with people. People live at peace with leaders. People live at peace with each other. There should be not just the absence of hostility. There should be this active wholeness, this active shalom, this active uh, fullness in our relationships that are peace-filled. 
And if there's something within your life or something within your posture or something within your heart that causes friction, that causes disunity, that that breaks peace apart, then this text wants to press on you. Is your heart posture right? Is your attitude right? Are you thinking rightly? Now, it's not to say that leaders can't be criticized. It's not to say leaders don't mess up. It's to say the default should be towards patience and esteem and respect and value and love. All right, so that's leadership. Let's move on. The second atmosphere, the atmosphere where mutual correction and support are the norm. The atmosphere where mutual respect, I mean mutual correction and support are the norm. Um, So I have four amazing, wonderful children. Four very different, distinct, unique personality children. And so one of my children is a little quieter, at least with us. And if they're really sad, you know what they do? They're quiet. And if they're really hurting because something happened in their life, you know what they are? Quiet. And if they are mad at us and want to punish us, you know what they do? Quiet. We have one that's a little more angry. And if they're sad, you know what they do? Anger. If they're really hurting over something that's happened in their life, anger. And if they're angry, sinfully at us, anger. And Chris is very dense, and so most of the time I mess this up, right? And so they all get treated the same. This is sinful. This is rebellious. you got to stop, right? And then on my better moments, or when Amy gets to me first and helps me understand, like this, this, and this happened today, or this, this, and this happened in their life over the past week, they're probably hurting. Oh, then I should, I should probably not correct it. I should probably step in and understand the hurt and understand the challenge. The verse we're about to cover is one of my favorite verses for myself, and it's one of my favorite verses in counseling, because what it does is it looks at, man, your symptoms may be sinful, your symptoms may be similar across all these different things, But the cause and the remedy are very specific to the circumstance. And so are we close enough, and this is one of my dreams for Fletcher, is that every single one of us is close enough to one or two or three other people that they can parse out your heart and they can know, is this discouragement, is this sadness, is this hurt, or is this sin? And can minister truth in a way that's appropriate to that. Because we can't treat every symptom the exact same. Somebody needs to be close enough to the heart to understand what really is needed. And so look at the, look at the verse here as he unpacks that. Now we urge you. All right, so in verse 12 we ask. In verse 14 we urge, we challenge, we press on you. If you were to go back to 4.1 when he started the practical section, he says we ask and we urge you. Right? So he's using these repeated ways or themes of, uh, of, of how he transitions. So we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. The word for admonish here is very clearly correct them. Very clearly call them back. Right? And so what is idleness? Idleness, the word, can be an active word that means they are unruly or insubordinate. Or it can be a word that is passive, meaning they are lazy and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. 
And what he's calling you to is to be close enough to another believer to have the relationships among other believers where it is very normal to go and to correct somebody that's not doing what they're supposed to be doing in their following of Christ, in their relationships, in their responsibilities. Somebody needs to sit down and say, look, you have a family to take care of. Get up and go do what you're supposed to do. Look, you've got a marriage that is not where it needs to be. Get up and have the conversations you need to have. You need somebody that will correct Somebody will say, look, I see a pattern of spiritual laziness in your life. I just want to encourage you. Like, we've got to get back into this thing. Admonish the idol. Correct the idol. And that's where you walk into somebody's life and you see something that is sin and it's wrong and it's coming from a root that is sin and wrong. And you're calling them back. You're correcting them. You're, you're welcoming them back to the path that Jesus has for their life. Admonish the idol. Admonish those who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing in their lives and in their relationships. I don't want to do that. You? I'd just so much rather pat them on the back and say, man, I'll pray for you. You'll like me better if I do that. But do I love you enough to push past what's uncomfortable? Because I want Jesus' best. I want Jesus formed in your life. It should be normal in a church. That you have people that correct you. The church leadership never knows about. That the patterns of your life that just need adjusting. That there's somebody that it never flies on the radar of anybody else but the person that sits beside you. And it should be so normal that these conversations take place. Because I don't know about you, but I sin like ten times before breakfast. I need people that are like, Chris, here's a pattern. Chris, here's an area. And you need that too. Right? And so admonish the idol. And then it says... Um, encourage the faint-hearted. The word faint-hearted, the heart is draining out. The heart is losing strength to face what's in front of you. The closest word we would probably use would be discouragement. Now, discouragement may look very lazy, right? But what happens if you choose to correct somebody that's discouraged? You're going to crush them. You're not going to get them back on the path of Christ. You're going to crush them. There's one more thing I'm not doing. One more thing to be discouraged about. One more failure. And instead of giving you an opportunity to breathe life into you and to breathe strength into you, we've taken life from you. And so the word encouragement means to come and stand beside someone to give them strength. And so you stand beside the people whose heart is draining out, who lack the ability to press on, who are discouraged and and near to quitting, and you go stand beside them and you say, I'm going to give you strength. And that's what it looks like to know a heart. That's what it looks like to come and deal with discouragement in a way that is particular to discouragement through encouragement as opposed to crushing and correcting. And so who in your life, their heart's draining out. Their strength and reserves are draining out. There's a discouragement setting in on your life. How can you come beside of them and give them strength? And then the third category, help the weak. Help the weak. The word help means to hold on to or to grab hold of. Now, the weak may be physically weak, right? They may have a a physical limitation. They may have gotten to the point of exhaustion, gotten to the point of they are just worn out, or they may be circumstantially weak. There is something in their circumstances that has overwhelmed them, or they may be what's categorized as the spiritually weak, right? There's an area of their spiritual life. There's an area of their views and viewpoints that is weak or immature, And for people like that, you hold on to them so that they don't slip away. Right? And so 
Who around you is facing right up against their limitations? Who around you is flat worn out with life? Who around you is facing circumstances that have crashed over and overwhelmed them? Who around you has a spiritual weakness or immaturity in an area? Hold on to them. Now, what would happen if you're holding on by a thread, barely making it through life, you know, barely getting yourself functioning, barely taking care of, everything's overwhelming, and then somebody comes in and, why are you so lazy? Why aren't you doing more? Why is your quiet time so weak? You know, and corrects it. Again, we're crushing instead of helping. Because the goal isn't that I'm right and I correct you. The goal is that you follow and run after Jesus. So what is it that's limiting that so that we can get back on that path? I look at it this way. Like when we're in a busy parking lot uh, with my my nine-year-old son, Christopher, we're in a busy parking lot and we're, you know, we're about to head into Lowe's or, or God forbid, Walmart, uh, you know, or something like that. So we're walking in the parking lot and just instinctively, you know, you reach out and you grab the hand. And he's kind of at the height where it's a little easier to kind of grab the neck and the shoulder. Not choking, just, you know, just a good firm hand where I, I can grip if I have to. Why? Because there's a danger in front of them that they're not aware of, that they could very easily slip out of my grasp and get in trouble. Is there somebody in your life, one, two, or three people in your life, that is near enough that when they see you starting to get in trouble, when they see you weak in this case, when they see you about to cross into a dangerous situation spiritually or through the stuff going on in your life, is there somebody close enough to just grip, to hold on to you? This is what Christian ministry looks like. There are times you just got to be really uncomfortable and correct. But there's a lot of times if we do that, well, we're going to default towards correction when somebody just needs strength added to their life. Or somebody just needs somebody to hold on to them tight enough that they don't slip away in the wash of what's going on in their life. Are you close enough to somebody to do that? And is somebody close enough to you to do that for you? That's what health, growth, and unity looks like in a church. That's the recipe. So this first set of things is really dealing a lot with people who are hurting. But unfortunately, within the body of Christ, as fallen, sinful human beings... We also can tend to hurt each other, sometimes on purpose and sometimes not on purpose, but we hurt each other. And what do you do when somebody hurts you? What do you do when somebody sins against you? What do you do when somebody wrongs you? Well, I've got to get even. You're not going to talk to me that way. You're not going to treat me that way, and I'll either retreat and grumble about you, or I will actively oppose you, or I'll find some way to get back. And there needs to be strong, spiritually strong in the moment, not permanently, spiritually strong people in the moment that say, we are going to stop the cycle of sin for sin for sin for sin. Right? Somebody that says, no, we don't repay people evil for evil. We give place to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We give a, we give a way to stop the cycle of sin and sin in response. Because don't you feel this way when somebody sins against you? Don't you feel really, really justified in sinning back? Like, it's almost spiritual that you should sin because somebody sins against you. You should hurt them because they hurt you. You're totally right, however you respond, because they did wrong. And there needs to be some people around your life that say, wait, wait, we're going to stop that cycle. We're not going to repay evil in the face of evil. Instead, it says, but do good to one another. 
We're not going to just stop evil for evil. I'm going to press you to, and I'm going to encourage you to, like, how can you go do good to somebody in your life? How can you go do good to them who hurt you? What does it look like to serve? What does it look like to do hospitality? What does it look like to share your life with? What does it look like to practically meet a need in someone's life? Go do good to each other. Right? The church should be filled with people who do good to each other, not evil. And there should be people who are watching out for each other to see that you do that. You see that? Like, he's not just speaking to, you're doing evil, don't repay evil for evil. He's speaking to the other people that are watching. And he's saying, just make sure that this cycle doesn't come out in the church. Make sure that you're prodding people to good works. But then it doesn't stop at the church doors. Don't just do good to each other. What is a practical way that you can love the lost student beside you this semester? What is a practical way that you can serve your lost neighbor? What is a practical way that you can love, invest, serve, and show hospitality to a lost coworker? Do good to each other, yes. Fill up the love of each other by doing good to each other, but don't dare stop with each other because there's a lost world out there that needs a Christian world that does good to them as they proclaim a good news message to them. Do good to each other and do good to everybody. That's, that's the kind of atmosphere of health and flourishing and growth. It's so much more than we just we avoid the bad stuff. Like There's this whole positive way that we can build an atmosphere that is encouraging and enriching and unifying and transformative in our life. And that's what he's pressing to within the church. And I always am hesitant to like say the church because like so naturally you think this building we're in. When I say the church, I mean you. By the person you're next to, gathered with the people you're gathered with. Like that we're doing good to people, not a building and an institution. The third step, where mutual, uh, I'm sorry, where we gather with joyful gratitude towards God. Whether we gather with joyful uh, gratitude towards God. And so the first two sections, we've dealt with leaders, we've dealt with relationships of investment and close ministry to each other. But what does it look like when we gather? And yes, some of these have personal devotional applications attached to them. You should pray and you should make it an ongoing habit to have continual conversations with God as part of your normal life. Not just a set aside time, though hopefully you have that, but you should just walk through your day and talk to God. You should just face what you face and talk it through with God, right? Pray without ceasing. And you should cultivate in your own heart a, a gratitude spirit versus a grumbling spirit because it's so natural for us to complain. It's so natural for us to grumble. It's so natural for us to be cynical. And so you should cultivate within your own heart. Like, there is so much more for me to be grateful for than there is for me to complain about. So I can give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will for me. But I think Paul here is talking about the gathering in all the rest of these verses. What should your heart posture be when you gather? And I hope this will prod at you. It prods at me. I hope this will convict things in your life because it convicts things in my life. What should your gathering posture be? Joy. Like, do you wake up on Sunday mornings thinking, this is the most amazing thing in the world. I am going to get to go spend an hour plus with this group of people. And I'm going to get to sing about the amazing things of who God is and what he has done. And I'm going to get to listen to somebody unpack the scriptures for me. And press the fullness of God in my life. I am, this fills me up. Rejoice always. Is there a joyful posture when you gather for worship? 
And that's only going to happen if there has been this cultivation of joy or maybe even a sapping out of joy through the week that you've been trying and you come back in for that revival of joy, this reprioritization of joy within our life. Like that's not a rare word in the scripture that you should rejoice in the Lord always. It's not a rare word in Scripture that you should serve the Lord with gladness. It's not a rare word in Scripture that you should delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. It's not a rare word in the, here where it's rejoice always and in Philippians where it's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Like That's not an uncommon command. And yet our obedience to it seems very optional. And I wouldn't say like, you should be guilty because you're not filled with joy. I would say that the, the, a, a joyless spirit that is consistent should indicate something in your heart. Like, God, I need something to wake back up because I don't have that. Do we gather with joy, expectancy, celebration? Pray without ceasing. Have you had ongoing conversations with God throughout your morning as you get ready? Have you had ongoing conversations with God instead of like yelling at your kids because they forgot their shoes? Not my example, I'm sure. Have you had ongoing conversations with God as you've transitioned from maybe some frantic and frustrating mornings or tired mornings into an environment of worship? Have you had these ongoing conversations with God to get your heart ready and right? Because we should be prayerful in our posture of gathering and then thankfulness have you cultivated a spirit of gratitude out there and are you cultivating and reminding yourselves and reminding each other of so many reasons to be thankful in here and so what should it feel like to gather what should i cultivate in my heart to gather on mornings like this joy ongoing conversation with god thankfulness in all circumstances this is not at all saying, all your circumstances are good, be plastic and happy. It's saying, in the most heartbreaking moments of life, those circumstances, there's a greater hope, a joy that's underneath it, and there's something to be grateful for that is eternal and bigger than what has broken your heart. And you've got to be in church to be reminded of those things, because in the middle of your heart being broken, you're not thinking, wow, God... Your promises are so big and amazing. You need somebody to say, look, God's promises are so big and they're so amazing that they're, they're big enough to hold your hurts. And you've got to be around people for that to happen. Joy, prayer, gratitude. That's what you can cultivate in your heart when you walk into these doors that will multiply it across the congregation. So do you create an atmosphere by your own personal part of those habits, those characteristics? And then the last step we're going to take it's a place, we're cultivating a place where we learn with discernment, but not cynicism. Where we learn with discernment, but not cynicism. So, two words the commentator used, if I could think of a better one, I'd use those two. He said, we kind of fall on two extremes of the spectrum. We're either cynical, or we are gullible. Let's call it undiscerning. Let's call it uncritical. And I think the point is, we look at this text, if you're looking at American Christianity, there is a massive swath of American Christianity that is totally undiscerning, totally uncritical about what teachers they listen to and what truths they allow into their heart uncritically, that's totally undiscerning about who these teachers are and what they teach, who these bands are and what they sing and what the root and the heart behind them is. And you can tell because the headliners that are household Christian names Unless you follow a certain group, like the headliners that most of us know are generally have some suspect teaching attached to them. Like the Bethel movement that all of you know and all of us sing, 
have we stopped? We have no critical filter to say, wait, but there's some things wrong there. There are some heretical, not just questionable things. Like, we're all about blowing up the Joel Osteen quotes. Hopefully you're not. Right? I'm trying to use one that's easy. Dude is still filling up 33,000 seat auditoriums with people. Stephen Furtick's got some really cool shoes. And man, he can say it in a way that's so hot. And he's got some really questionable things about his doctrine. But since he's cool enough, we're like, that's great. Man, that sounds so good. That makes me feel good. Let him in. Let them all in. Right? And then the wet blankets like me throw them out in a sermon. And you're like, tune you off too. Right? I'm not mad. But then there's another extreme that Paul warns about here. And it's the extreme of cynicism. The response to this swath of uncritical Christianity is there's this hypercritical Christianity. The theology police that are, do you measure up? Do you fit our group? If you don't fit our group, we want to fault find. We want to nitpick. We want to find what's wrong with you, wrong with your personality, wrong with your ministry, wrong with your teaching. And nobody fits the bill but us. And Paul wants to warn against both of these things and say there should be a gracious discernment that is part of your Christianity. Or if that's not a gifting that you have and if it's not a filter you have yet, because maybe you're newer in the faith, then you've attached yourself to some people that are a little more solid that, that can help you discern. But that there should be, your default posture should be, I love those who teach the truth. I want to receive those who teach the truth. I want to receive truth. And then behind that desire, that gracious, just, I want to be deferential to, to, to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then behind that, there's this filter that, yes, I am going to grid out through God's word, what I'm hearing and what's being said and what kind of lifestyle is being lived behind it. There should be a gracious discernment that isn't cynical and that isn't gullible. Let's look at it in the text. So we're going to get into some murky stuff here. But the point that's being made is this. Don't quench and don't despise teaching. Test teaching. Right? Now we get into the murky stuff. And so he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. So quenching the spirit literally means to put out the fire of the spirit. Right? And so what does that mean? Now, I've got some ideas, but he doesn't tell us. What he does in the text is he uses the next line to illustrate what he means by, don't quench the spirit by despising prophecies, would be a way to look at it. So what we know is the Holy Spirit is holy. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. The Holy Spirit exalts Jesus. So if you want to quench the Spirit, you diminish Jesus. If you want to quench the Spirit, then you lead into error, not truth. If you want to quench the Spirit, you don't have a lifestyle of love, joy, peace. You have a very opposite lifestyle of the works of the flesh, which are listed out. And if you want to quench the Spirit, then you live in unholiness, not holiness, right? But specifically what Paul is referring to in your posture is those who hear the word taught through teachers and Sunday school teachers or out there on the internet or, or in here in a sermon don't have a posture of despising. They don't have the personality. They don't have the skill. They don't have the, the intellect of my favorite teacher that is on a podcast. But more than that, 
You don't reject out of hand a teacher's teaching. You don't default towards finding a problem with their teaching, finding a problem with their truth, finding a problem with what they're sharing. You're not looking for the problem constantly on guard to try to erase and try to pick apart what they're saying. You're going to test it. We'll get to that in a second. But right now it's charging the cynical. Don't despise and don't reject the people that stand in front of you and as faithfully as possible declare to you what God says and what is true. Now, that's especially important because here's, here's a perspective, and this is why it gets a little murky. Like, what is prophecy? We'll get to that in a second, but why it's kind of important here is like, the Thessalonians aren't sitting there with a nice leather-bound Bible in their hands. They have eight weeks of Paul's teaching. Maybe, at best, they have one other book of the New Testament, and now they have the letter of First Thessalonians. That is their entire Christian knowledge by which they must judge the the teacher's teaching. That's their entire bank of Christian knowledge that a teacher has to draw from. And then they have the Old Testament, but they're not particularly Jewish in Thessalonica, so there's not going to be a high familiarity with that. That's all the teacher has to teach from. And that's all the congregation has to judge from. So don't despise prophecy when a guy is faithfully following the Lord to do his very best with what he has to give to you what is true. Don't look to find a problem with that. Don't look to find a better speaker or a better personality or, or to tear apart and parse every word they say. Don't despise them. Now, what is prophecies? This is Chris, because the Bible doesn't de- define it really well. It talk, you know, we have the prophets, but he doesn't define it really well. So if you notice, like when you read the prophetic books of the Old Testament, very little of it is future telling, which is how we think of prophecy, right? And very, very little of it is a personal uh, word that I have about you that I didn't know, and now I go share it with you. Like, read the prophets. That's not a high percentage of what they have to say. Do you know what the dominant thing that prophets do is? They take the word of God that we have, and then they call you away from unfaithfulness back to faithfulness. The prophet uses the word to call people who have abandoned the covenant, forsaken God, drifted from God. And they say, come back, get back in line. And they use judgment and they use the future promises of God. And they use uh, the direct confrontation or they use signs and they use symbols. But it's all about, here's God, come back to him. Here's the covenant and promises he made with you, come back to him. Don't despise people that call you back to faithfulness to God. Now we do have a book to filter it through. And this book should be used by people to call you back to faithfulness, to bring you back in. Don't despise when that happens, even if it's not packaged that well. And don't despise when that happens if the words could have been a little cleaner and more precise. Don't despise. And then it talks about those who are less critical, and it says, but test everything. There should indeed be a filter of this book set behind what you're hearing so that you can judge it for truthfulness and accuracy. And when that happens, you should grab hold tightly to what is good. That is, you should absorb it into your heart and apply it to your life. You shouldn't just let it go by because, hey, that was a good truth, but I don't like it. That was a good truth. I don't want to do it. No, you should cling to it, sink it down in your heart, and let it come out in your life. That's what you should do when something passes the test. And then you should abstain from every form of evil. You should throw out the rest. But more than that, you know what I think he's talking about? False teaching is almost always accompanied by false living. False teaching is almost always accompanied by immoral living. And so if you read Second Peter, he tells you very clearly, if you look out for greed, 
And if you look out for sexual sin, and if you see that within leaders, what you'll see is probably this lifestyle of evil, and those are the two main ways they do it, will also be a mark that their teaching is probably not as above board as it seems. Right? And so test everything, cling to and apply what is good, and then look at the lives. And does the life roughly measure up? Again, not hypercritically, because you don't, you know, use the same lens you would want used on you. But do they have a pattern and a character and a habit of there's some big question marks here? Well, then you should double down on your testing of their, uh, of their teaching, because you're probably going to find a problem there, too. There's a connection between false beliefs, false teaching, and false and immoral living. And then he just closes out with a prayer. Starts with a prayer, labor of faith, or labor of love, work of faith. Closes section, uh, chapter 3 out with a prayer, thanksgiving. Now he closes his book out with a prayer, a prayer of praise. Now, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. What has been the theme of 4 and 5? Holiness. It's the will of God for your life. Now what is my prayer? Holiness for you. That you would be kept blameless in your spirit, in your body, in the way you carry your body, and you would be kept blameless in your mind until the coming of Jesus. And by the way, he's kind of stacking the deck in his favor because the very prayer he's praying, God is faithful to. He called you to holiness. He is going to accomplish holiness in your life. He declared you holy by the work of Jesus. He will make you holy for all time and glory. And so now he's going to do exactly what he's praying for, sanctify you completely. A few practical things as we wrap up. First, pursue unity and peace. I would say the second highest value of your life within a body of believers should be unity. And you should fight for it. You know, the, the Bible says guard the unity of the Spirit. Like the unity, Jesus, or, or the Spirit gave us unity. He united to us to each other by the blood of Jesus. We are united. And so he says, church, guard that. Fight for that. Don't let anything spoil that. Don't let anything come in and wedge. Whatever it takes, set walls around your unity and peace and war for it. And so what in your life might be disunifying? What in your life might be the, the friction of peace instead of the multiplying of peace? Because, again, I would say it is the second highest value within a church environment that you should have is peace. And so are you a person that cultivates peace around you? Are you a person that multiplies the unity of the church and adds to the unity of the church? Or are you somebody that for, for our wants and for our wishes or, or just for important things but not essential things, are you somebody that, that tears apart peace? Pursue peace and unity. Second, step deeper into each other's lives. Step deeper into each other's lives. Again, it is my dream for Fletcher that every single person that is attached to Fletcher's ministry has one, two, or three people who know them well enough to parse the contours of their heart, to know, they're close enough to know, was that sin and we've got to bring them back. They're close enough to know there's discouragement setting in in your heart and I'm going I'm to surround you until strength comes back. Or that are close enough to know there's weakness, there's overwhelming, there's an immaturity in an area. And there's somebody that knows that. That's my dream for you. What part do you need to play to be part of that dream? Because that's the kind of church that's going to be healthy. That's the kind of church that's going to be growing. That's the kind of church that's going to be unified. You're going to be changed in that kind of place, in those kind of relationships. Third, gather and live with joy and gratitude. What is God challenging you in your heart that as you gather, as you come into this room, this is just part of it, right? But it is part. 
What is God challenging you? You haven't cultivated joy. It's been okay to be joyless. You haven't cultivated a prayerful spirit. You had not talked to God throughout this morning or at all this morning. You spent the morning grumbling and complaining and whatever else. And this wasn't yeah, grumbling and complaining. What is he prodding in your spirit to say, cultivate joy, cultivate prayer, cultivate gratitude, so that when you come in here, that gets amplified as we gather together. And then lastly, this is the final week, take the challenges. First Thessalonians challenge that you share the gospel with someone you believe to not know Jesus over the course of this study, and the study is wrapping up. Who are you going to share with? Who have you been serving? Who has been on your heart to pray for that it's now time to open up your mouth and tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ? And then as a church, we're right in the middle of a reignite emphasis. Reading the Psalms in 60 days. Start now. If you hadn't started. And you're looking for the themes of what's going on in the world that identifies. You're looking for the themes of how does it come back to God. You're looking for the themes of what should be happening in my own heart. And that you're investing in your family or in a small group more intentionally with our catechism. And that you're praying every day at 310 for just 30 seconds, a minute, whatever it is. God, I want Fletcher to be face-to-face again. God, I want to make a difference in one individual's life. I want to see Fletcher grow in holiness, love, and faith. Take the challenge. We very intentionally lay these things out because we very intentionally want God to do specific things in your life and in ours. And we need God to do some things in our life that we believe you also need him to do in yours. So take the challenges. If you, don't, if you need more information, we've got all kinds of printouts and stuff we can hand, hand you. The path to health, unity, and growth is not easy. It is not a solo project. And it's so worth it. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, make us people who love each other. Make us people who walk in when it would be easier to withdraw. Make us people who will step into the heart of discouragement patiently and not walk away or not do it harshly or not do it in a moment, but to walk beside until strength comes back. Make us the kind of people who pursue each other. Make me that kind of person, Father. And I pray that none of us would escape that one simple exhortation, that one simple challenge, that one simple prick of conscience that this section would give us. Because there's some area of all of our lives, God, that need to be pried open and need to be changed. And God, I pray you would not let us leave here without confronting it and beginning the process of changing it. God, would you do that and would you start with me? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. With that, let's stand and sing uh, before we're dismissed.